0: This is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. Today we're going to talk about Jimmy Carter, the former president who is 98 years old, announced last month that he will forego further medical treatment, instead opting to receive hospice care at his home in Georgia. Like millions of Americans, I'm thinking about and praying for Carter and his family. It is also a moment to reflect on his life and legacy and an opportunity to look back on his presidency. There is perhaps no one better to do that with me than my guest this week, Jonathan Alter. Jonathan is a contributing correspondent to NBC News and a former senior editor of Newsweek. He's written books on presidents, including FDR and Obama. And in 2020, he published a biography of Carter called His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Jonathan Alter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Preet. So as we were discussing, given the news about the former president, you are in, in great demand as an expert and I think someone who's been very insightful years after the presidency ended about Jimmy Carter's, obviously, time in office and his post-presidency. My first question to you, though, is do you have some sense about how his family is doing? I should note that we're recording this on Wednesday, March 1st. This episode won't drop for a few days, and I don't know what will transpire between now and then, but what's going on now with the family?
1: Well, I am in uh, pretty close touch, um, and his death is not imminent. But having said that, he could die any day. So there's there's an uncertainty here that I think um, those of us who, like me, who've lost uh, our parents're familiar with that at the end, uh, it can uh, go in a couple different directions. So um, he does not have um, underlying cancer or heart failure. Uh, but he is very old um, and, you know, you can get organ failure very fast. And he's been hospitalized a few times in in recent months um, for dehydration and just being sick. So um, it's very, very hard to say.
0: Let me ask some, I don't have enough time to do full justice to the life and times of Jimmy Carter, but let, let me start with some basic things. Remind people who are of a younger age, how in the hell did a peanut farmer from Georgia get elected president of the United States? How unlikely and improbable was that?
1: Very, very <laughs> improbable. So Jimmy Carter uh, grew up in the Jim Crow South. His his father was a white supremacist. Uh, and his mother was a nurse who took care of black patients for free. But it might as well have been in the 19th century when he was a boy because they had no running water, no electricity. Um, And he was the first person in his family to go to college. And he went to the U.S. Naval Academy. He'd always dreamed of that. And when he got there, you know, a whole new world opened up to him. Uh, He is a brilliant man. And after the Naval Academy, he joined Hyman Rickover's nuclear navy, um, which was the most exciting technology project of the middle part of the 20th century. They actually put a nuclear power plant on a submarine before they had one on land. And he, um, in that period in 1952, he he uh, helps rescue a, a melted down nuclear reactor at great personal risk, um, which is just another story in this Epic American life. But then his father dies and he returns to Plains, Georgia, population 650, where he was born, and uh, assumes his father's peanut warehouse business, farmland, and uh, other businesses, and most important, his civic responsibilities. So he becomes chairman of the Sumter County School Board right after Brown versus Board of Education and does nothing to implement the Brown versus Board of Education decision in large part because under Georgia state law, to give you some idea of how horrible things were, uh, if you integrated schools at all, those schools immediately closed. And so Really, you know, as he's starting to make it in Georgia politics, and he runs for the Georgia State Senate and wins in 1962, although they try to stuff the ballot box and prevent him from winning, he has to duck the civil rights movement. And uh, eventually, he's elected governor of Georgia in 1970, and kind of betrays all of the segregationists whose votes he had sought to get to become governor and integrates Georgia state government and goes on the map uh, nationally as uh, because he says in his inaugural address, which is on the front page of the New York Times, the time for racial discrimination is over. Now, nowadays you go, well, of course it's
0: over. But in That does 19- not sound like a controversial statement. In, in
1: 1971 in Georgia, it was very controversial. His white supporters walked out of his inauguration. So, but he becomes the face of the new South, and then, under Georgia state law, he's not allowed to run for re-election. So, after he leaves, in late 1974, he's running for president, and he's unemployed. So he has plenty of time of to time. go out to go out to Iowa, and even though he's zero percent in the polls, his timing is perfect because he's this moral, religious outsider very bright, very gifted at retail politics. And it's right after Nixon's resignation, just two years after Nixon's resignation. And so everybody is ready for this breath of fresh air. And he's improbably uh, nominated over much better known senators he was running against. And then he wins a very close election against Gerald Ford, who had succeeded Nixon.
0: The pendulum swung. And We'll talk about his presidency for a few minutes, and then we'll talk about how the pendulum swung again against Jimmy Carter. So he becomes president improbably. Do you agree with the conclusion that had Ford not pardoned Nixon, Carter would have lost and Ford would have become the president?
1: Yeah, I think the election was so close that I I think that's a fair assumption, although it's hard to know. For sure, Um, Carter was in many ways a more attractive candidate than Ford, so it's possible he could have won. But the country was moving in a rightward direction in the
0: late 1970s. So he becomes president, and there has been a lot of talk about how calamitous that presidency was. He, He became president right around the time I began to be aware of politics and government. I was born in 1968, and I remember there being a lot of people upset at Carter, I remember the Iran hostage crisis very, very well. In fact, when I was in school at the time, a lot of people thought that my family were Iranian, and you can guess what people said about us and our family. You have said that the conventional wisdom about Jimmy Carter is wrong. What do you mean by that? What's the conventional wisdom, and how is it wrong?
1: Well, the conventional wisdom is a uh, weak president, saintly uh, former president, and What I try to do in his very best is explain that his presidency is badly underrated. Not that he belongs on Mount Rushmore or in the top rank of presidents, but it's badly underrated. And his post-presidency, while inspiring and uh, redefining of the whole role that a former president can have, is a little bit overrated because he didn't have as much power to change people's lives when he was out of office and he also was irritating to his successors because <laughs> he was kind of a freelance secretary of state as a former president but in terms of his presidency so yes uh, you know clearly he was crushed by Ronald Reagan so he was a political failure but a substantive and in many ways far sighted uh, success and we can talk about those successes in a number of different areas, it might be, Preet, that you want to uh, talk a little bit about the judiciary
0: since, you know, that's your one of your specialties. Uh, I was going to ask you first about the environment and how you view his presidency through the lens of the last number of decades. What was he about with relation to the environment back between 77 and 81?
1: So, first of all, he signed 15 major pieces of environmental and energy legislation. He had the first fuel economy standards, the first toxic waste cleanup. Uh, with the protection of 150 million acres in Alaska, he doubled the size of the national park system. It was the first time that public utilities were ever incentivized to uh, use clean energy. Um, now, we we I think a lot of people know that he put solar panels up on the roof of the White House, uh, which Ronald Reagan took down. But that gives you some idea of his ability to peer over the horizon. And at the end of his presidency, he issued a report about global warming, indicating that he would uh, tackle the problem in a second term, which adds a more tragic dimension to that 1980 election.
0: Yeah. I mean, he was so ahead of his time, that he put solar panels on the White House and was mocked for it, and Reagan removed them. Isn't that right?
1: Yes, Reagan removed them. Um, many years later, Obama put up a different kind. He was mocked for it in part because, and this gives you some idea of what happened to his presidency, after the Iranian revolution, OPEC had another uh, burst of steam um, there had been the Arab oil embargo in 1973, but OPEC started acting up again. They had us over a barrel and fuel prices went through the roof in 1979. And we had these gas shortages. I and remember this, uh, you know, people had to line up for hours to get their tanks filled. And at that time, people's attitude toward their car was a little bit like it is now toward their phones. You know, Americans were in love with their cars and. This sent Carter's numbers down below 30% for a time. But he was determined to look to the future anyway. And that was the period where he, he put those solar panels on the roof and you know signed a number of other bills that had long, long-lasting impacts. Created the Department of Energy, created the Department of Education, FEMA. Reform the civil service for the first time in a hundred years. A lot happened under Carter that was entirely forgotten about after he was swamped by events in the second half of his
0: term. Yeah. I mean, you have written that that Carter won approval of more major legislation than any post-war president except Lyndon Johnson, and he did it in only four years that is correct
1: yeah and there, there were 40 major pieces of legislation that he signed and, and this was a president who actually didn't do a very good job of getting along with Congress and he failed on some big things too he he couldn't manage his relationship with Ted Kennedy uh well enough um, to uh, get any health care legislation passed uh, and his fraught relationship with Ted Kennedy which Eventually led to Kennedy running against him in in the primaries in 1980 was very harmful. Although somebody that you likely know, uh, Steve Breyer, uh, came out of it because uh, Carter did uh, important deregulation, uh, particularly of the airline and trucking industry, and Breyer was working for Kennedy and um, worked on that with the Carter White House. And so, when after he left, uh, he lost the presidency when he was a lame duck, Carter agreed to appoint Steve Breyer to the bench. And amazingly, the Republicans, even though they were, were about to take power, this is an example of how different things were.
0: They they confirmed him. You've written about Carter's core decency and his modesty and his character, and that's what has been lionized about him for the last number of decades in his post presidency period. Do you connect? his decency in any way with his political failure as a president? Is success at the highest level in the world incompatible with with modesty and core decency or not?
1: No, I, I, don't, I don't think it is incompatible with modesty and core decency. Um, and I think we're seeing some of that with Joe Biden right now. He's a decent person and he's succeeding in the presidency. Clearly, Abraham Lincoln was a decent person and he succeeded. But having said that, if Jimmy Carter had bombed Iran, as his mother was urging him to do, he would have been reelected. But the hostages would have all been killed. So um, the choices that you make can be conditioned if you have Carter's view toward peace. So Jimmy Carter was and is passionate about peace. And um, he puts it above even human rights. And uh, one of his top people, Hamilton Jordan, who was a brilliant campaign strategist and then later later uh, unsuccessful White House chief of staff, but a, a terrific guy who I got to know a lot, not long before he died uh, uh, 10 years ago, he described uh, his old boss as a near pacifist. And I do think it's tough to be president and a near pacifist. That's going to get you labeled as weak, even if you're anything but.
0: One of the things that I remember from, from that time, and there was recently a documentary about it that, that I thought was quite good, was during the hostage crisis in Iran, which I don't know if people who are young appreciate how much it fully seized the nation. I think I think Nightline... Was a TV show that was either born in that time period, or reached the heights of popularity during yeah, that well, time. It period. was
1: born in that time period. It was
0: born during in that time, and and news really came into its own as something that you focused on round the clock rather than sort of at six thirty p.m. every night. And he authorizes this rescue attempt, which maybe some people have forgotten, and it fails. Can you can you talk about how that decision that he had to make affected him? How he thought about it? How you think? his presidency and the political outcome might've been different had that rescue attempt succeeded. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. I, I assume you're talking about, um, the documentary on HBO hostages that yes. aired recently. Yeah. I was a consultant on that and I appear. In That's it why it was so good. Uh, um, but I the, knew I was like that, this has alters, <laughs> alters fingers on it. Um, <laughs> I but the, um, Iran hostage rescue mission takes place in April of 1980. And by that time, the hostages have been there for five months. And uh, Americans are getting very frustrated that Carter's diplomacy is not bringing them back. And so um, they stage this very risky operation. First, two helicopters malfunction, in um, part because of the sand in the desert, so they're too short of helicopters and then a th- and they, they abort the mission, which was very disappointing for Carter and the Americans. But before the public learns that the mission has been aborted, when they're leaving Desert One, which is a, the desert um, rendezvous point outside Tehran, the staging area, to come in and try to rescue the hostages as they're leaving To go back to the U.S. military base, a third helicopter crashes into a C-130 transport that had brought in the the troops who were going to, special operations, special forces, uh, who were going to undertake this very risky operation, killing eight crewmen. So what had been just an aborted mission becomes a complete fiasco and a tragic one. And... So I have a scene in my book where um, they tell Carter and he just puts his head in his hands. And, you know, he realizes that this fiasco is his responsibility and he takes full responsibility for it, which was something that the uh, people who survived uh, the mission and came back uh, were greatly appreciative of. He didn't try to say, you know, if they had done it differently, it would have worked. You didn't throw anybody under the bus. Um, Now, when I talked about this with Carter, he said, if we'd had two more helicopters, I would have won. I don't actually believe that's true um, because there were so many other problems. He was facing double-digit interest rates and double-digit inflation, Imagine running for re-election when you have interest rates as high as 19%. Uh,
0: well, we, we now in the United States are, are very, very, very unaccustomed to inflation. That's why you're hearing all the political chattering now. I mean, it's almost unimaginable to a young person to think about inflation that high. 15%. I mean, it,
1: it, when interest rates are also that high. And then there was actually a little recession at the beginning of the election year. What was that
0: phrase? The misery index.
1: The misery index, right? (laughs) Right. Unemployment and inflation. And then, you know, he was challenged by Ted Kennedy. um, So he didn't have a united Democratic Party behind him. I'm
0: going to get to Ted Kennedy in a second, but could you also unpack another myth in politics? He very famously is described to have given a speech, which is given the label, the malaise speech in which he never uses the word malaise. Could you could you just take us through what that speech was, why he gave it, and why it backfired?
1: You know, I mentioned the long gas line. So, so right in that period, he's scheduled to give uh, another speech on energy. I think it would have been his fourth address to the nation on energy. And those speeches weren't re- really working. And he realized. Partly on the advice of his pollster Pat Cadell, who had done some research on this, that there was what he in his speech described as a crisis of confidence in the United States, almost a spiritual crisis, and that he was not responding properly to it. So he assembled a wide array of Americans, some. Um, famous some uh, ministers a, a whole bunch of different people members of congress and they all went up to camp david and they told him what he was doing wrong and how to get the country back on track and then he gave what came to be known as the Malay speech and it is an extraordinary speech that i i would really recommend people watch some if i devote a whole chapter to it in my book um Because it starts out with him admitting his shortcomings. He reads from some of what people told him, and this is just unimaginable now. So at one point he says, A governor told me, Mr. President, you're not leading, you're just managing the government. Imagine a president saying that about himself, (laughs) right, to a national television audience. And he goes different now. Right. He goes through all of this and he diagnoses the okay, malaise, that's what the critics called it, um, that had enveloped the United States in the wake of Watergate and Vietnam, the first war Americans had ever lost. And he thought there was a spiritual crisis because Americans were too materialistic and consumerist. And so he told people, like, think about your country. And if you do, we'll apply this energy strategy that he outlined in the second half of the speech. So the immediate reaction to the speech was actually very positive. And by coincidence, I was in the speech writing office the day after the speech, because the summer before, when I was in college, I'd been an intern in Carter's speech writing office. And I went back, uh, I was visiting after graduating from college. And I saw Rick Hertzberg uh, later up for the New Yorker, uh, who was Carter's chief speechwriter, and he was really happy because Carter had just gotten this big boost in the polls. He was up like seven or eight points. He was still only, you know, into the low 40s, but it it, you know, it seemed like it had all gone really well. Then he made one of the worst decisions of his presidency. He fired his cabinet and he asked for the resignation of everybody in his cabinet, and he accepted five of them. And this was seen as a real sign of instability. Other nations reacted really badly. They thought that maybe the government had fallen. You know, Americans reacted badly. And he was back in political trouble, which he didn't come out of until the hostages were seized later in the year. And the first reaction of the hostages was a rally around the flag. The Russians invaded Afghanistan, rally around the flag. So that's how he beat Ted Kennedy in the primaries. But then at a certain point, people got really tired of the hostage crisis and the economy stayed bad and he went on to lose to Reagan.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like almost an impossible situation with the economy, terrible, the energy crisis, terrible, a foreign power humiliating us for 400 plus days. Do you think that if Kennedy hadn't run against Carter and weakened him, that Carter had a shot against Reagan, or it wouldn't have mattered, given everything else?
1: So he definitely had a shot. The polls were very close until the last few days. The final Gallup poll actually had Carter
0: winning. Uh, but So polls were terrible back then, too.
1: There, there were some really bad polls, <laughs> but I, I think the best way to answer that question um, comes from the interview that I did with Paul Volcker, um, who— you know, was the one who jacked up interest rates. I mean, he got Ronald Reagan elected and reelected because his harsh medicine at the Federal Reserve eventually worked. Eventually. Right. Eventually, inflation, eventually inflation <laughs> ended and you had growth in the early 80s that Reagan benefited from. So a couple of years after Carter left the presidency, he and Volcker saw each other at a fishing lodge and Volcker said, look, I'm I'm sorry if I cost you the presidency. And as Volker recounted it to me, um, Carter smiled, one of his genuine smiles, and he did also have a fake smile, but this was a genuine smile. And he said to him, Paul, there were many factors. <laughs> and I think that's the best way to to look at it, is that all of these things combined to uh, lead to to his defeat and and the conclusion that he was a political failure as president. And that conclusion is accurate, but I try to say that he was a political failure, but a substantive and far-sighted success. And I think that's what his his epitaph as president should reflect.
0: Do you think, in retrospect, that Edward Kennedy was out of his mind to challenge an incumbent president? And second. If the experience of Ted Kennedy tells us anything about the reluctance of people to challenge uh, other sitting presidents, including hypothetically Joe Biden.
1: Out of his mind would be too strong, but his brother-in-law, Stephen Smith, who was his campaign manager, advised him uh, after he lost Iowa and New Hampshire to Carter to drop out. And his campaign was had been floundering. And he very much should have. And when I interviewed Walter Mondale, he was bitter about it. Carter was trying to be a little magnanimous toward Kennedy um, after Kennedy's death, but they had a fraught and almost toxic relationship that I talk about a lot in the book. And and um, so I think it was just wrong of Kennedy to do that. He should have known that he was softening him up, it wasn't wrong for him to run against him because at that time in 1979, Kennedy was up 30 points over Carter in the polls. So even Hamilton Jordan, even Hamilton Jordan, Carter's top aide said, well, it was fine for Ted Kennedy to run. It looked like he was going to win. It's when he lost those primaries and should have recognized that taking it all the way to the convention would be very destructive that's when he should have dropped out. And I think that example probably will dissuade anybody from challenging Biden in the primaries because it it, it did go so badly for the Democrats. I'm not sure that it should. I mean, I, think, I don't think any president is entitled to the nomination just because they happen to be the incumbent. Um, so I think it would be fine. And I don't even think it would be that destructive uh, for um, a, a Democrat to try to Run against Joe Biden, especially just since, as long as
0: you don't overstay your welcome and you make up exactly, and unite your party.
1: exactly.
0: Although in that race, the thing that I remember most—and I was young—and I've seen it since on YouTube—Kennedy gave a hell of a speech at the convention. Did he not?
1: Yes, he did. I was at the on the floor of that convention, and even the Carter people uh, recognized that he gave uh, one of the best speeches of his life. And uh, Carter's acceptance speech. The next day was uh, not nearly as good, and then Kennedy takes his own sweet time to come over from the Waldorf Hotel to the Convention Center to Madison Square Garden to for the famous, you know, clasp of his hands for the news magazine cover, right? The victory shot, the money shot, and when he gets there, he doesn't actually raise his hand. He just gives him a curt little handshake. Yeah. And it doesn't really seem to be uniting the party. I asked Carter what was going through your head when uh, Ted Kennedy came on the podium and kind of snubbed you. And Carter's answer was four words that he was drunk.
0: <laughs> so oh, no.
1: a lot of times,
0: <laughs> oh boy, you
1: know, a lot of times there's other things going on that you have to read history to learn about.
0: Yeah. Uh, like Johnny Walker. <laughs> um, we, are, we are at risk of of not keeping this in the in brief category, but I, I want to ask you just a couple more things. I didn't look this up before the interview with you, but there is, uh, I don't know if it's on an annual basis or or more or less frequently, but there's this ranking that historians do of presidents. And it's interesting to see over time, which presidents climb up the list in retrospect and which presidents fall down in the list. First of all, are you familiar with those lists? Do you put any stock in them? Are they silly? Where was Carter and where is he now and where should he be?
1: They are kind of silly, but um, it's a fun game to play and there's no harm in playing it. Um, So Carter never fell below Nixon, in part because he always had a lot of uh, respect on a personal basis. Even when he was crushed by Reagan, people admired him personally. They just thought he had been overwhelmed by the job um so he was down in the you know bottom quintile uh the and, bottom quintile yeah but Who else then is there? well you know James Buchanan and Franklin Pierce and Herbert Hoover and Richard Nixon and um now he's he's moved up uh, considerably and he's obviously not in the top quintile but i i think he's uh, pretty comfortably in the second quintile at this point, and maybe moving up some more. And I I hope that my book contributes to that because, you know, historians should look at presidents differently than journalists do. So as a journalist, it's my job to look at how a president does politically. As a historian, it's my job to look at how a president changes the country and the world. And on that score, Um, There are all kinds of things that we haven't talked about, Um, you know, whether it's curbing redlining, you know, (laughs) or, um, you know, preventing a a major war in Central America with the Panama Canal treaties or what Carter thinks is his most long lasting accomplishment, which is normalizing relations with China, which is the foundation of the global economy and would not have been possible without Normalization. So there's a lot to unpack um, in his presidency. It's been badly misunderstood and uh, and underestimated. And um, you know, while he's already way higher than Donald Trump, I-, I think he should pass Reagan for all kinds of reasons we can discuss. And I think that it's conceivable that before long he will.
0: We all are very obviously thinking about Jimmy Carter and his family. When he passes, it will be sad, certainly, but what a full life he led. What do you think the tribute to Carter will be like in Washington and around the country, and what should it be like?
1: Well, you know, um, in Washington, Reagan's death, George H.W. Bush's death was a bigger deal. For the world, Jimmy Carter's death will be a, a much bigger deal. He's a global icon, There are families in Africa that named their children after him. Um, You know, he took Guinea worm disease from 3.5 million cases to under 25 cases. This was a disease that had ravaged uh, several African countries. River blindness made huge progress on that, uh, prevented wars in Haiti and North Korea after he left office. And of course, everybody knows, you know, built all these houses with Habitat for Humanity. So I think there will be an enormous outpouring and that he's gone from um, being derided to being beloved. And um, I'm reminded of what George Orwell wrote after Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated. And Orwell had been uh, a critic of Gandhi um, for being too righteous. And as we know, a lot of people criticized Carter for that. And he was in bad odor in American politics, even inside the Democratic Party for decades. Um, but what Orwell said of Gandhi was how clean a smell he has managed to leave behind for all the rest of us. You know, that's um, that's Carter. The decency and the core goodness And the willingness to devote much of his life, not only to his personal ambition, which he freely admits, but to making lives better for other people. And that's a legacy, not just for other former presidents to emulate, but for all of us.
0: I didn't know that George Orwell quote about Gandhi. There's another quote about Gandhi that I remember, and I'll mangle it because I don't have it in front of me, and I haven't seen it in a while, But I think it was Einstein who said about Gandhi, centuries hence, we will scarce believe that a man like this in flesh and blood walked the earth. And maybe a little bit of that is true about Jimmy Carter also.
1: Uh, I think that's fair.
0: Jonathan Alter, thank you so much for coming on the show and spending your time with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Preet. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters Cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam ozer and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Barrara. Stay tuned.